When you read the headline, you get concerned. But if you drill down on the actual guts of the law, it only immunizes somebody from civil liability if the person who was hurt is convicted by a jury of the felony of rioting. And so there's a lot of steps you have to get before a plaintiff is deprived of their cause of action arising from driving through a crowd. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, according to The Hill, Republican lawmakers in 34 states have introduced more than 80 anti-protest bills thus far in the 2021 legislative session. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed an anti-riot bill into law in that state, in part that a driver may avoid liability for injury or death caused if fleeing for safety from a mob. And Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed a similar bill into law as well, requiring the driver unintentionally harms protesters in fleeing said protests. So is this legislation constitutional? Does it infringe on an individual's First Amendment right to peacefully protest? Or is this a necessary deterrent to combat violence at protests? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be discussing states regulating protests through legislation, the First Amendment, and the impact on those who protest, as well as some of the police reforms. And to do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our guest is attorney Jeff Lewis from Jeff Lewis Law. Jeff has been practicing law in Southern California since 1996, and probably, Jeff, you've been a friend of mine since then, I think. Yeah, since the early days of blogging. That's right. Well, Jeff is a certified appellate specialist by the California State Bar. He focuses his practice in four areas, appellate law, First Amendment litigation, general litigation, and land use in the Palos Verdes area. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, as we talked about in the beginning, let's get a little bit of background on how states are making attempts to regulate rioters. Okay, well, the two big states that everybody are ta- is talking about is uh, Florida and Oklahoma and the new laws passed there. And Florida has grabbed some headlines with uh, a law that would immunize people involved in car accidents or driving through a crowd at a protest, those types of folks are immunized from civil liability. So that's grabbed some headlines. But there's some other interesting parts of the law that haven't grabbed headlines that I'd love to talk to you about. Yeah, well, let's talk about the constitutional foundation of it first. You know, kind of I'm digging back into con law one and thinking we've got a First Amendment right of free speech here, which triggers strict scrutiny and limited to time, place, and manner regulations. So do I have that right, or what What has been the changes since, uh, I hate to say it, since we graduated from law school? The analysis is correct, but since law school, we have things like doxing, Twitter, and other issues uh, of technology, but your your constitutional framework is still solid. Okay, good. Well, let's talk about some of those oddball things that are going on and what these states are trying to do. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Now, personally, I think the existing laws that are on the books are more than sufficient to address the issues that some of these states are facing. But due to political pressure, these new laws have been passed, and this one in Florida defines a new crime called mob intimidation, which makes it unlawful for any three people 
to meet together to use a threat of force to force another person to assume or abandon a point of view. Mob intimidation. New crime. Wow, that sounds like something that King George would have whipped up back in the 1770s. Yeah, this is the most concerning part of the law. It's rife for abuse. There's a lot of discretion there for police and prosecutors to declare what is a mob. Uh, If you and me down in Newport Beach are are complaining at a Starbucks uh, about the quality of the foam on the lattes, we're not going to get charged. Uh, We know uh, the kinds of people that are going to get charged under this law. Right. And certainly uh, that raises people's hackles. What about this business of granting civil immunity to people that drive through protesters blocking a road? That just sounds insane. You know, it does. It doesn't. When you read the headline, you get concerned. But if you drill down on the actual guts of the law, it only immunizes somebody from civil liability if the person who was hurt is convicted by a jury of the felony of rioting. And so there's a lot of steps you have to get before a plaintiff is deprived of their cause of action arising from driving through a crowd. Well, given that uh, the people who are reading the headlines and not reading the articles and going into the depth that we're going to go into in this podcast, uh, what difference does that really make? I mean, people who read the headline think, I can now drive through a group of protesters. Well, but it's not that easy. I mean, think about, I mean, well, let's just say this. Someone who reads that headline might ha- take have that as the takeaway in terms of what they do, maybe a little more freedom to drive through a protest. But the reality is when it comes to the application of the law and the legal consequences, I don't think there's going to be a lot of legal consequences because I don't imagine that many people convicted of the crime of rioting or mob intimidation down in Florida are going to be in the position of a plaintiff filing a lawsuit. No, probably not. Well, in Minnesota, there was a bill proposed in the, in their state Senate earlier this month that prevents those convicted of an unlawful protest violation from re- continuing to receive student loans or other forms of financial aid, including financial benefits. Is that a far reach or is that a reasonable restriction? Craig, I hadn't heard about that one, but I suspect that one's going to last about five minutes. Uh, I suspect if it hasn't already been challenged in court, uh, it will be, just like the Florida one has been challenged in court. Well, let's talk about, you know, you you kind of alluded to the fact in the beginning that these laws are are rather vague. They give the prosecutors and the police a lot of discretion. And, you know, a lot of times laws get passed that way, and the court's job is to narrow these things down and define what the edges are. Uh, Is that a situation here, or are these just just vague to begin with. These are vague to begin with. I I think a number of these provisions are going to end up being tossed out of court by this lawsuit pending in Florida. Let me me highlight two uh, interesting parts of the Florida law. One, for certain crimes involving mob intimidation or rioting, you're going to be denied bail, meaning you can't be released from jail immediately. And instead, you're going to have to spend jail overnight until your first court appearance, which is unusual. Normally in a protest, people who are arrested Uh, They're given the equivalent of a ticket and let go a couple hours later. So the fact that people are going to be forced to spend a night in jail, I suspect that particular uh, provision of the law will be uh, easily undone. Right, because it's so different from the existing method of treatment. Exactly. And one could argue it has the intent of trying to deter, if not the effect, at least the intent of trying to deter people from participating in protests. I seem to remember my law school professor calling it chilling free speech. Yeah, that's the ultimate in chilling free speech. I've got 
teenage kids that like to go out to protest. And I won't tell you which side, but they love to go out to protest. And normally I wouldn't have a concern. But if we lived in Florida and I thought they were going to spend the night in jail, I'd be a lot more concerned about letting them go out and, uh, and attend a protest. Well, it seems like there's a lot of dangers in protests these days, perhaps more so than uh, we saw. I'd like to think it's more so than we saw in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s. But uh, looking back at Kent State and a number of other situations like that, it seems like this has been going on for a long time. There's a cadre of Americans that do not like protests. Yes. Yes. And the question is, do you deal with this with existing laws or do you deal with the problem of protests with adding new laws to the books. I think the existing laws are sufficient. And what about the issue of federalism here? I mean, we have, you know, states enacting different laws about protests. And if you go there, if you go along with the belief that many protesters are bussed in from different states, as it was some in the 60s as well, what effect does that have? You know, that's an interesting point. You know, Florida's trying to stand out, get ahead of the other states by being the most aggressive about protests. The First Amendment exists as a floor of minimum First Amendment rights. So in terms of keeping the states even and uniform in terms of a minimum protection for the First Amendment uh, for protests, I would expect that these lawsuits will have a way of kind of winnowing away the most obscure and aggressive parts of these new laws so that there is some uniformity among the 50 states. And how far up the appellate chain do you think these things are going to go before that happens? Do you think if it makes it up to the Supreme Court, do you think that we'd be seeing uh, upholding some of these laws these days? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I, I think, A, they will go all the way to the Supreme Court, at least the Florida law. I think this court could uphold some of these decisions. Now, it's too early to say there haven't been any real hearings on motions for preliminary injunction where the records developed with facts in terms of as-applied challenges. But I think this Supreme Court could uphold some of these laws. You know, and we as talk as lawyers about, uh, especially plaintiffs lawyers and civil rights lawyers, always about picking the right case. I mean, there's, you know, George Floyd was the right case to pick to to challenge some of these things. What kinds of things do, would, a, would a civil rights lawyer want to see in a protester to take these cases on? Or is it going to have a violent protester, a nonviolent protester? What set of circumstances do you think would find the best foundation to form a case that says, we're going to challenge this all the way up? And then on the other hand, what's the worst? Yeah. You know, uh, I would think if I were challenging the laws, I'd want to focus on the nonviolent protester. The person is more of a casual protester who might join in on a process as opposed to being an organizer who actually feels chilled who actually says, you know what, I'm going to stay home tonight because I don't want to end up in jail or I don't want to have a felony on my record if a cop decides that I'm one of the three that have made up a riot. So I think that would be the best kind of plaintiff. And optics-wise, of course, uh, a violent person who has a track record of uh, engaging in violent protests would probably be the worst kind of plaintiff to have. Let's talk about this potential legislation, and let's move uh, Heather Heyer, the Charlottesville counter-protester that uh, was killed into Florida. What happens in that circumstance under this new law? Does the driver get protected? Yeah, that's interesting. So, of course, that was in Charlotte. We're talking about a Florida law. But if this law were applied to that situation, I believe her mom has brought a $15 million wrongful death lawsuit. And because Heather has never been convicted of a crime uh, in connection with a riot or inciting a mob. 
This law wouldn't apply. This new law would not provide an affirmative defense to the wrongful death lawsuit that's now pending. I'll tell you one interesting uh, part of the law that hasn't got any uh, headlines that I find interesting. I do a lot of law in terms of defamation and Twitter and Facebook. And one aspect of the Florida law makes it a crime to dox. If you publish someone's information on the internet with an intent to harass or cause violence to that person, the person you're doxing, that's now a crime in Florida. And think about this. How many times have you seen on Twitter the phrase, Twitter, do your thing? Uh, that, that new law makes that illegal. And what exposure does Twitter have for that beyond the individual poster? Well, under current law, Twitter wouldn't have any liability under Section 230 as in its present form. But, I, you know, there's lots of talk about reforming Section 230. Well, you talked about some oddities that are in this bill. Let's talk about the protection of Confederate monuments along with memorials and statutes and, I'm sorry, statues, listen to me, and historic property. Yeah, it's a felony now in Florida to destroy a monument. And not only can it uh, you be convicted of this crime, but you could be ordered to pay full restitution of the cost to repair or replace the monument. It's a big deal. That sounds expensive. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't practice law in Florida. I don't know how they define what is and isn't a monument, but it seems to be a slippery slope in terms of as applied and facially how you convict people for destroying things that are referred to as monuments. And are there Civil War era monuments that are going to be protected by this law or more modern monuments. There's a lot of questions here. Right. Let's assume that someone is upset about a Confederate monument in their town. And, and you know, let's take the, the largest example of Mall Stone Mountain in Georgia. Is That's protected under this statute, or if it was in Florida. But what rights do people have to express their frustration, or as we've seen it, um, they, people have torn down these monuments. They they have they pour red blood all over them, or paint, and they've done other things. You know, protests are violent in many instances, and obviously destruction of public property is not appropriate. But is there anything that people can legitimately do other than stand there with signs around a monument and say tear this down? Yeah, that's a great question. Under Florida law, there those kinds of people that do anything other than hold a sign that do anything that would destroy the monument are in jeopardy of criminal prosecution. Now, they could rely on prosecutor discretion in terms of prosecuting crimes or police officer discretion in terms of who they arrest or ultimately judicial discretion in terms of uh, a criminal defense lawyer asserting First Amendment as a defense to a criminal charge. But the reality is you're probably not going to take any steps to destroy a monument if you know you're going to face a felony conviction in Florida. So you're left with perhaps the alternative of uh, filing a lawsuit. Do you think a civil uh, rights lawsuit against a monument would have any traction? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. To have it declared not worthy of historical monument protection or carved out of this criminal law, that's a great idea. Or is if I were gonna if I were gonna challenge it, I would think the way I would do it would be to say that the monument should not be in a public space. It should be in a private museum. Yeah, that would be a great idea. Although a group has filed a lawsuit challenging the law already, so it'll be interesting to see if the law regarding monuments as a whole is struck down as opposed to protecting or deprotecting individual monuments. 
And so where does this bill take us, you know, if we were to take something like this and let it sweep the country, every state enacts it, could we have the type of protest cities that erupted in Portland? Well, let's talk about Portland. Do you think what happened in Portland was a result of not having strong enough law on the books or simply because the police or the politicians made decisions about how they were going to enforce the laws? I tend to think it's the latter and that passing new laws isn't going to change what happened in Portland or prevent other cities from becoming Portland. It's more about addressing the underlying angst of the community regarding police practices than having the right anti-riot bill on the books. Well, definitely, uh, there's been a lot of challenge to police actions. What level do you think that our former president has played in all of these challenges and this type of thing becoming uh, to the fore? Well, uh, he certainly has normalized violence and disregard for norms and disregard for the rule of law in a way that no prior president has. And you think that's emboldened people to protest violently, or do you think that it is emboldened people to kind of clamp down on these protests? <laughs> I think both. I think that's a great question. I think both. I think people feel emboldened in a way that uh, we've never seen in the history of our country. Look what happened in January in terms of the what used to be a peaceful transfer of power in our country. And it's also emboldened people to pass these aggressive laws in Florida where they want to actually chill uh, protests, prevent people from coming out on the streets. You know, and one of the things that surprises me that how much this violence has erupted into the planes and, and air flights around the country. Do you think that this kind of root malaise or angst that we've been feeling is taking itself out on authority? Yeah. You know, it's, it's been a perfect storm if you think about the president and you think about the angst of being locked in our homes due to COVID and the angst of parents and not sending their kids to school. It's all kind of created this huge kind of pressure cooker. And we're now seeing the results of that. Right. So we're counselors as well as attorneys. What's your solution there, counselor? Are you going <laughs> well, to solve the world in this problem? I'm not sure the, the podcast uh, is long enough to address that, but I would say this. I think the focus should be more on dealing with the angst of the most of the protesters who hit the streets and are concerned about police practices. You're never going to quell or satisfy the extremists the violent protesters, the people who want to see the cities burn. But the real focus here should be on reforming the police. Right. What steps do you think should be taken? I mean, there's this big noise about defunding police. Do you think some of the first steps people have asked for have been sending mental health people and social services on uh, nonviolent, less aggressive homelessness and some of the crazies that end up getting shot? Is that a good solution? Yeah, you know, boy, I hate that tagline, defund the police. But the concept behind it, the shifting resources and trying something a little different. I mean, things are so bad with police practices in this country. Would sending mental health professionals out to a homeless situation or a mental health situation, could that be any worse than our current situation? It's hard for me to imagine. And what other steps? I mean, you, I didn't mean for this whole thing to morph itself into uh, police reform, but since we're there, what steps would you take? Well, <laughs> that, that's a hard question to answer. Y hearing from the community, 
listening, looking historically at what's happened in terms of use of force and the disproportionate uh, impact on our communities of color and shifting how we've been doing things. You know, one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and ex expecting a different result. Let's try something a little bit different in how we respond, how we handle traffic stops, how we come out to domestic violence situations. And the big issue, probably by numbers and dollars, the biggest issue is how we deal with drug crimes and people who are under the influence in terms of law enforcement versus treatment. Right. And what situations arise? I mean, it, you know, I've read through the situations where black people have been killed all around the country, and it seems from just uh, participating in daily life sometimes is enough. What do you think about that proposal to change the level of education of police officers to someone who's graduated from college? Yeah, that you know, that would be interesting to see what impact that would have on recruitment. I don't know, here in Los Angeles, I think sometimes they have trouble filling the slots they have or the slots they need for our police department here in L.A. I would be curious to know before they flip the switch on that proposal whether or not there'd be enough volunteers to fill the, the need, the, the legitimate policing needs. On the other hand, if you're sending out mental health professionals or other resources to more situations that the police traditionally have responded to, maybe those two in tandem could work. Let's take a, a look at just the concept of violence and, and protesters. You know, it, we remember Gandhi, a nonviolent protester who was extremely successful. And certainly there's been uh, significant destruction of property. People have been injured and killed. What obligation do protesters have to be peaceful? Maybe the obligation is not the right word. Do you think if they turned peaceful in the ways that Martin Luther King encouraged, in the ways that Gandhi encouraged, do you think that these laws would then come into play? Do you think that we could ever find a leader like that and not have him get assassinated? Huh. There's a lot you know, of questions to unpack. <laughs> yeah. There's no question that the violence in Portland and other places, you could draw a line between Portland and the violence in these new laws. And that if there was more adoption of nonviolent protests, that we wouldn't see these new laws. But the problem is many times you have nonviolent organizers organizing a nonviolent protest, and then you have outsiders come in who put gasoline on the fire. And who's to blame in that situation? Is it the original protesters who were trying to have a peaceful protester, protest or the, or the outsiders? And how do you deal with that? And you also have situations where you had some instances where police themselves have uh, donned protester outfits and come in and become agitators. Is this just a, is this a human nature? You know, are we just tribal and we're never going to get out of it? Yeah, this, this will be a problem for a long time to come. As long as you have communities that feel that they're not being represented, that they are being oppressed, that the police uh, mistreat them and the police feel like they're misunderstood, that uh, they're micromanaged and they're judged uh, just for doing their job. Depends on what you define as just doing their job, because <laughs> some of the just doing their job hasn't been too good. Hey, I'm not a defender of the police in general, but let me just say there are great police officers. There are great me uh, men and women who are on the force, you know, protecting us and who call, who respond to a call when 911 is dialed. 
And those folks should be applauded for what they do. But there's a systemic problem in these police departments that have to be addressed. Well, and yeah, we've seen it in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, we just read a few reports coming out about how deeply gangs go into uh, the sheriff's deputies and how how long it's been there. Yeah, it's really systemic in L.A. And I would imagine in other large cities as well. I mean, there's nothing unique about Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cultural problem with the police. You know, when they when the police start wearing tattoos and uh, uh, imitating the gangs that they're supposed to be policing, that's a problem. Right. But how do you separate that? You know, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, there's there's probably an old Star Trek episode on it. You know, what happens when you put the guards and the and the prisoners together? Do you know, do they really separate or they become, you know, homogenous? There is no solution to that problem. That problem will exist as long as we have a society, I think. The Stockholm syndrome is a variant of it, I would think. Jeff, this has been a fantastic discussion, but the time has come for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. Well, let me just say I'm disappointed by these new laws in Florida and a similar law in Oklahoma. They're, they're an overreach to solve a problem that existing laws can already solve. And uh, I think people need to be more thoughtful about applying our existing laws rather than trying to make a headline with a new law. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about these issues. If people want to contact me, my website is jefflewislaw.com. And I do have a podcast, California Appellate Law Podcast, uh, which people can Google. Great. And it's J-E-F-F-L-E-W-I-S.com, right? J-E-F-F-L-E-W-I-S-L-A-W.com, jefflewislaw.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, Jeff, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.